Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to episode three of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. On this week's episode, we'll be talking with Maria Sample. Maria is a board certified behavior analyst with a Master of Arts degree from the University of British Columbia, majoring in special education with a concentration in autism and developmental disabilities. She is also a certified Early Start Denver model therapist. Maria has been working in the field of applied behavior analysis with children with autism for over 10 years. The majority of Maria's experience is in early intervention with preschool aged children, but Maria has experience supporting elementary, middle, and high school students as well. Maria is passionate about translating the science of behavior analysis to create meaningful improvements in quality of life for children with ASD and their families. Maria's master's thesis research involved comparing several strategies to teach receptive language to children with ASD. Maria has presented research at conferences locally and internationally, has published research in behavior analytic journals, and has served on the board of the British Columbia Association for Behavior Analysis, and is a subject matter expert for the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. She has experience designing home-based behavior analysis programs to manage problem behavior and teach social, communication, and self-help skills for a variety of ages, profiles, and settings. If you are planning to collect continuing education credits for this episode, please write down the three secret words so you can claim your certificate. Maria Sample, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So excited to do this. Uh, it's going to be fun, I think. And I think people are going to be really interested to, to hear about your practice and kind of uh, some of the different things you're doing. And also, I think they're going to be interested to hear about your journey as well as some of the, uh, w- at least one of the side gigs that you have that I always <laughs> find really cool to talk about. So maybe just getting started, um, maybe you can just tell us sort of how, how you got in this field. In the first place, definitely. Um, yeah, I had no that no idea that ABA as a field existed at all um, when I started out. So I had um, I grew up dancing and yeah. had experience working with kids teaching dance, and so that was where I sort of got started working with children. And I really loved that. I did like parent and toddler music classes at the community center and stuff like that. Cool. Um, and then when I got into university, I actually went into um, the contemporary dance program at SFU. That was how I started in university. Oh, wow. Maybe wouldn't have been able to get into university otherwise, given my, my grades, but <laughs> how I got my foot in the door. And then while I was working, my, my stepmom actually has a master's degree in special education. And so she's worked, uh, she was working as a resource teacher in Burnaby at the time. Okay. And when I entered university, she was like, hey, I know this family who's looking f- for someone to work with their kid would you be interested? It's really part-time work. It's great for university students. It's close. They live close to the university. So I ended up taking that job and that was my first ABA position. And I had no idea what autism was really, or, or what ABA was, but I just really fell in love with that, like individualized instruction. I remember I was like, I was still teaching dance and I was doing ABA sessions. And I just felt like I wasn't, um, when I looked at the two things side by side, I felt like my dance teaching was kind of pointless because I wasn't getting to every student mm. Whereas when I was working with on this ABA team I was giving this student this one student exactly what they needed and that just felt really satisfying to me so gotcha. so the dance the dance was kind of more of a group instruction whereas you got to do really intense kind of one-on-one and what kind of so what what sort of ABA was this that you were doing 
Yeah, it was, I think, what was pretty common for the time, which is really heavily discrete trial ABA. Um, it was a student who's a little bit older and who was in school already. Um, so yeah, we were doing, um, you know, lots of discrete trials to work on letter ID and number ID and some matching things and that, that sort of thing. And yeah. And was that at, at, at homes or in a, in a center or? Yeah, it was a home-based program. Um, so the family hired me directly and I worked with them for quite a while. And then once I started doing that, I started looking for other home-based program jobs because mm. I was like, it's really cool. And the first time I saw a job posting for a two-year-old, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this. Uh -huh. like, I have to be a young kid. This is going to be so much fun. Right on. So, yeah. So obviously you kept doing it. Did you, did you finish the dance degree? I did not. No. Okay. <laughs> so did you switch over to something different or? Yeah. So about two years into my dance program, I had been working as an, as an ABA therapist for maybe a year and a half of that. Mm. And I was really liking it. And I just started to feel like, A, what was I going to do with a degree in dance? <laughs> and B, if I really want to be a dancer, I don't need a degree, right? right? So if that is the route that I want to go in eventually, I don't need to have that. This isn't the way I have to do it. And it just seemed to me, given the work that I was doing, that switching my major to psychology would just be much more practical. Sure. So that's what I was yeah. doing. Gotcha. And then that was still at, S at uh, was that SF you said? Yeah. Yeah. And so you, fin yeah. you finished that degree there. And then sort of how, how did the career progress from there? Yeah. Um, well, I also had the fortune of being um, at SFU at the time that it's the uh, joint program with Douglas College where they, um, because at Douglas College, they had a disability and applied behavior analysis certificate. Program. And then they worked with SFU so that that would really easily transfer over as part of your undergrad degree. Okay, right. I was able to get into that program and do that course transition uh, as part of my degree. So I, mm. at that time, I started BCABA supervised independent field work as well. And then when I graduated, I was, I think I had a few more hours to do, and then I was ready to sit the BCABA exam. Wow. So, so when you finished, I think you might be the first person I've actually met that has actually did that program. So when you finished SFU and graduated, you had a degree in psych, but you also had sort of what was it that basically was, was that the equivalent of that sort of post baccalaureate thing that they have at Douglas? Yeah. So it, it was exactly that. Like I took the courses at Douglas and they just transferred to SFU as part of my psych degree. Right. Right. Perfect. And then right. And then right away you had that BCABA course sequence. And so did you go ahead and do the BCABA exam? I did. Okay. And I, uh, I passed the BCABA exam in 2012, and so I worked um, as a BCABA full-time sort of private practice um, with the same supervisor who supervised my practicum. Mm -hmm. And uh, after a while, I realized, hey, this is maybe, <laughs> maybe I should go to grad school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and applied and got in and then did that whole route. And you did the UBC program, right? I did, That's yeah. right. Okay. And did you do the, the MA or the MED? Route. I did the MA route nice. at at UBC, and yeah, I really felt like I didn't know if I wanted to continue on to a PhD or not. But I felt like at least by doing that, I wouldn't close that door. Yeah, have that option, right? Yeah, I'm sure it's possible to do it the other way as well, but it, I'm sure it's much more difficult. I was the, so. I was the same same thing. I I I, sw I switched to the MA, but it was yeah. it was for that idea that maybe it could be an option down the road, even if it's not till I'm 60. Um, yeah. so 
did you, so you, so you did a thesis then what was your, your work there? Yeah. So I did a thesis, um, where we compared three different strategies for teaching receptive language to kids with autism. So my thesis is actually very different from the work that I do now because it was very structured and very like, uh, a very molecular analysis of like, what does a discrete trial for receptive instruction look like? We were specifically looking at if I say, so when you do an, uh, auditory conditional discrimination. So uh, receptive identification, right. you have an auditory sample stimulus. So the thing that you're, that you say, okay. you know, like point to cup or letter A or whatever. Um, and then you have the comparison materials that are out in the field. And based on the instruction that you give, one of those things will be the right one. And the other ones will be the wrong one. Okay. And we don't know what that is until you say which one, because you could ask for any of them. Right. So in behavioral terms, of course, that's you know, the correct picture becomes the S, the discriminative mm-hmm. stimulus, right? As soon as you say the thing that you're looking for and the other ones are S deltas, right? Um, and so we were specifically looking at the order of the auditory sample instruction versus showing the comparison array. Mm. Okay. And, yeah. and what'd you find? Well, like with most research, it is mixed <laughs> research. Um but depending on, we did see certain sort of patterns of responding, like um, for kids who really weren't attending to what was going on, we would see them respond to the comparison array before we'd said the sample stimulus. So we called that an early response. Um, they, there was no way to know which one was the right or the wrong answer, right. um, sort of a form of faulty stimulus control. So for those types of students, it might be more beneficial to first um, say the sample stimulus mm-hmm. and then show so that they don't have an opportunity to do that. Interesting. So UBC is not uh, known for uh, you know research and kind of verbal behavior and that sort of thing. Most of the most of the theses that seem to come out of UBC are either, at least in the last you know twenty years, have seemed to be either a heavy family centered PBS fo- focused, i.e., Joe Lucician, mm-hmm. or also PBS focused, but maybe some AAC on the side, i.e., Pat Miranda, and so. Just connecting the dots, it sounds like you probably did yours with Dr. Laura Groh. Is that correct? We did, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Having the opportunity to work with her was one of the main reasons why I applied to UBC, actually. No doubt. So I was at different um, different programs and online versus in person and that sort of thing. Um, but I'd seen her present at BC ABBA uh, while I was, might have even been while I was still doing my undergrad or pretty early on in my career. Mm-hmm. Love the work that she was doing with these nations. And I just thought that was so cool. That is cool. So the opportunity to work with her was really great. Yeah. And uh, we're actually going to be publishing those findings. Ooh. I finally feel confident to say that because it's pretty much a done deal. So okay. uh, that will be in Java at some point in the near future. Oh, that's so we awesome. just sort of finished the final. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, that's cool. It was, thank you. <laughs> I'm very excited. Because you've already had one paper with your name on it, right? And yeah. now this, this one will be... Uh, with your name, yeah. uh, name a little closer to the beginning. A little closer, not quite at the beginning, but I, I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. That's super awesome. Yeah, it's too bad Laura's not here anymore. She went to Nevada, I think. Is that right? And now she's uh, well, now she's in um, New Jersey. New Jersey. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All yeah. oh, right. The the Garden Center or something like that. I think it's called, which could be a confusing name for passerbyers looking for looking for fertilizer. Um, but, um, right on. Uh, so you said that, you know, the, the verbal behavior research, uh, this sort of thing is not anything like what you're doing now. So 
What, what are you doing now? So currently, I am co-clinical director of an early intervention clinic where we primarily do ESDM therapy um, for really young children. So our clients are typically, you know, whenever they're diagnosed up until about four years, and we do one-to-one small group therapy um, for those kids specifically. And then we also have a number of parent programs and different sort of depending on what parents need to learn or focus on. So ESDM, that's the early start Denver model. Um, and uh, so I've heard a little bit about ESDM. So how, uh, or what, what made you go that route? What made you go to, to the ESDM world? Yeah, it's actually not super um, straightforward <laughs> for me, but given my experience working with kids, I've always known that I've loved working with young kids. Like you just get to be so silly and excited and fun. And it's just like this whole other way of interacting that comes really natural to me. So I've, when I started to learn about it in my graduate school education, I was like, Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Like there's some promising research coming out here. I think this is a really cool thing to learn more about, but the way that the ESDM training works is you're actually not eligible to become certified until after you have a master's degree. Mm wasn't really able to learn too much more until I'd finished that whole process. So that kind of went on the back burner and I worked on getting my BCBA credential first. And of course, then a bunch of time had passed from when I sort of initially heard about this and and became excited about it. And um, there had been a lot more sort of criticisms in the community about what ESDM was. And so I was really kind of skeptical at first. I had that really solid like clinical and academic training around evidence-based practice, I really did not want to be a bad behavior analyst, right? Like that was the worst fear. (laughs) And so I felt like I didn't, I didn't know if I wanted to pursue that because people didn't quite agree with it. Right. But my, my baseline sort of way of approaching these kinds of situations is just to learn more about it. Right. Like I just wasn't sure. I didn't know. I knew that people had criticisms of it, but I felt like I needed to explore that and figure that out for myself. So I ended up going into the training process and going through it. And I'm so glad that I did. (laughs) So I I don't know anything about um, ESDM beyond what you kind of told me the last time when we had a little pre-chat. I guess first off, maybe just tell us a little bit about what ESDM is, like how it works. Um, But also I'm curious, why are there criticisms? It sounds like it's a a approach. Totally. Yeah. So essentially the way that I like to conceptualize um, ESDM, I don't know if that everyone would agree with this, but for me, the way that I do this, it's ABA applied to really pivotal and developmentally appropriate skills. And in an intervention package that includes these components that are really important or good to have for kids on the spectrum, Mm -hmm. right? Instance within the ESDM model, we look at having a shared control between the child and the adult. So there isn't like a particular objective about that, but we're doing that across every single activity in a session if we're doing the ESDM. And that's good practice for, um, you know, having that relational give and take in play, right? That is an, uh, an important social skill. So there are certain things like that that are just part of what we do that are, I see as being beneficial, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And then we also, good quality teaching, right? Good quality behavioral teaching for assessing and pinpointing objectives and 
teaching those objectives using prompting and prompt baiting and shaping and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I'd say it's very behavioral. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really know exactly where all of these criticisms come from. Mm-hmm. I'd say the most prominent one is around the evidence base, right? There are some, you know, like the association for, um, I think it's, yeah, ASAT association for science and autism treatment. Yes. They published, uh, something on their website that kind of reviewed a lot of the recent research of ESDM, um, and kind of concluded that it wasn't strongly supported. And it's been a little bit of time since I looked at this, but I, I felt at the time that it didn't include all of the relevant research. And of course there's more research coming out these days as well. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I mean, I mean, you definitely you know find it to be, you know, a, an effective approach and something that works really well for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it could just be like, so these criticisms were these, are these sorts of like general in the field criticisms or are these things you were hearing kind of locally? Um, I'd say both. Mm. Uh, I haven't come across a ton of stuff locally myself, but yeah, I'd say the biggest criticisms is that ESDM is not evidence-based and therefore we shouldn't be doing it Mm -hmm. to which I respond, you know, I'm a behavior analyst first and using the science of behavior analysis first and I'm monitoring progress. Right. And it's not really that different than the other work that I would be doing aside from the types of skills that I'm targeting are very um, developmentally sequenced, naturalistic, right? Those those are our teaching strategies that have support, right? Hundred percent, and and uh, you know, I would I would argue that there are, is is an evidence base to uh, to these. Uh, there, the, these so ESDM, as I understand it, falls into this sort of a broader category that um, doesn't, doesn't always roll off the tongue nicely, but the naturalistic developmental behavior interventions. Right. Uh, yeah. The NDBIs, as they're called, and and not something we hear a lot about, um, uh, you know, in, in ABA treatment generally. I mean, I think a lot of it's because, you know, particularly in BC, a lot of our funding, you know, kind of came about as a result of, you know, the Otten case. And and um, and so for those listening, that's sort of the 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 parent versus the BC government um, suing for, you know, a right to you know, effective treatment and, and funding for services for, for autism for kids under six anyway, um, which, you know, as, as, as has been in many provinces and many states based on the LOVAS studies and, 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 the, you know, and, and kind of the results that came from there. And so, you know, I think in BC in particular, there's been a real uh, push over the years by parents, mostly from different groups, um, you know, sort of pushing the LOVAS model as the one. So yeah, so I mean, and so from that, I guess ESDM isn't LOVAS, so it's going to it's gonna get some criticism um, in the same way I think other models have like positive behavior support and and, uh, and, and other versions like that have, have seen things. But you, you mentioned the, the, but there is, a, there is a lot of evidence. I mean, it's an ABA-based intervention. All the behavioral sort of techniques are ABA, 100%. Um, and then there's developmental milestones, which also, I believe, have, you know, an evidence base in psychology, at least, right? 
If you're planning on collecting CEUs for this podcast, you'll need to know the three secret words. The first secret word is Denver. Yeah, and and so NDVI has really merged that uh, behavioral teaching that we know that works really well with how typical child development goes, right? And that's, I think uh, that's always been a really heavy criticism of the, you know, low vast style discrete trial training, right? I, the, one of the ways that I was um, uh, exposed to that, you know, in my early training as a behavior interventionist is people would often say, and I often said this to other people early in my career, you know, kids with autism have behavioral excesses and deficits. Mm-hmm. Right? That was sort of the common thing that we would hear a lot of the time. And so I think sometimes when we have practitioners who are coming at it from that perspective, and for me in the past, when I was coming at it from that perspective, it becomes about changing the the particular excesses and deficits that you see in front of you mm-hmm. versus placing this child within sort of a natural developmental continuum. Mm. Yeah, that's sort of the way I kind of conceptualize that because some some of those key early social skills are just missing, right? right. We're not looking at that developmental progression. We're going to miss that. And the the great thing about teaching those early key pivotal social skills is that they lead to um, more learning later on, right? Um, that's the whole, whole purpose behind the pivotal skill. So you've used that term a couple of times now. And I think that's another one that, 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 that brings up a little bit of controversy um, in, in, in certain ABA circles, the sort of idea of, of pivotal skills, uh, you know, versus, um, the, the behavioral cusp. And I know it's sort of that question on the BCBA exam that every, every new student, uh, dreads because they, they can't seem to tell the difference. And they feel like maybe this is the NDBI folks creating their own terms for things we've already, already done. Um, and I know pivotal skills comes, I, I think it comes out of the whole pivotal response training. Um, sort of piece. Um, what what are pivotal skills? That's a great question. <laughs> I can tell you what I think they are, mm-hmm. and I'm a hundred percent sure that this is correct. Uh-huh. Um, I th- I think if I if I remember correctly, um, the difference between behavioral cusps and pivotal skills is that a cusp will lead you to further reinforcement, yeah. and pivotal skill will lead you to further learning. I think I think that makes sense. Yeah, and and anyone who is is listening, and uh, if we get to the point where I have a place where you can make a comment, I, I would love love to love to hear more. But I think you're right. The cusp opens up to more opportunities for reinforcement. Um, uh, and uh, but then one would say, if it opens up more learning, that would also be opportunities totally. for more reinforcement. But it does seem to be sort of a core piece of this some um, pivotal response training, and I know. I don't. I haven't seen many or if any examples of folks in BC that do PRT. Um, I'm sure there's someone out there that does it. Maybe does it privately that found it interesting. But I do know that uh, you know for the Canadian listeners, Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. um, their entire at least for at least when I was looking into this stuff years ago, their entire sort of provincial program is PRT. Like everybody does PRT. Um, and, uh, and that's, I think that's why you might see some research on PRT, um, and PRT kind of related kinds of interventions happening a lot at like universities like Dalhousie and Halifax, because they have that sample of, uh, of folks to kind of draw on. So, uh, you know, PRT is, is, is a thing and it's definitely got a lot of, uh, evidence behind it. Mm-hmm. Something that I've been noticing 
I mean, we won't touch on this too much. I don't want to make every uh, podcast interview controversial, but uh, you know, there's a lot of talk right now um, about uh, you know, uh, traumatic experiences and um, and adults with autism and um, and sort of uh, some criticisms from that community um, on ABA uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, you know, and I think that they've all been a lot more in the forefront. You know. Uh, as a result of the whole of the of the of the Black Lives Matter George Floyd thing, now basically rights of everyone, whether they be gender, autistic, uh, ethnicity, and so on and so forth, are all becoming things people are talking about more and less afraid to talk about, uh, which is awesome. I think it's great, um, uh, and you know ABA is getting that. And I, I had the opportunity to chat briefly with um, I'll leave the names up but with a, a, a well known. Um, autistic advocate that's been that's been uh, definitely at the forefront of all of this stuff right now and i was asking him you know uh we were talking about aba and i was asking him about uh these ndbis and are you familiar with them and sort of what your perspective was on them and and he said to me uh um you know i th- i really think they're 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 the closest thing to good aba that exists right now um and he said you know there's still some individual stuff that needs to happen um, and, and again, we won't get into those sorts of areas right now. There's lots of um, different podcasts folks can listen to, um, uh, which I'll, I'll share in uh, show notes um, to kind of get a lot, a lot of good ideas around that. But I thought it was cool that, you know, we're so there's such an assumption that they that the, the autistic community just hates ABA, but it's not ABA that they hate. It's it's the way it's been sort of delivered in the past and that ND, and I really see NDBIs um having a resurgence um because of this and I think this is why yes I think this is why you're probably hearing less complaints and criticisms about ESDM these days um uh because you know I think they they take out some of that stuff that the folks don't like and they put in you know the, the idea of the sort of the naturalistic reinforcers the idea that you're not going to contrive a setting you're just going to kind of go into an environment and uh you know, as anyone would and, and, and teach based on sort of just those natural motivations. I think that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. That the natural reinforcement is a huge part of it, but so this is actually a common feature of all NDBIs um, is the child initiate teaching episodes specifically. So I'm not, so what that looks like, if I can um, kind of paint a picture of that is we were sort of in, the, in my ESDM training, we were working on, um, it, it was sort of a, a workshop with a bunch of people and we have different instructors. There's four people, four instructors who attend and there's a child in the room and you're taking turns working with the child. And that's how the, the training, advanced training workshop, um, when I did it was set up. And one of the goals that this person was trying to work on is to get the child to, to give her something, to follow the instruction, give, mm. right? And so we were trying to, you know, I was watching this person in the training with me work on this and, you know, we can't actually start teaching until the child wants to be doing what we're doing with us. Mm. That's that's the first thing. And the second thing is when we know that they want to be there, then we need to make the thing that we are trying to teach them how to do really motivating. Mm. So I think they're playing with the car toy. And she did something really exciting with the car. Like um, I think she, she added like an extra piece, not, not something that was part of the toy, but like propped up a book or something, mm. the car go down the ramp. And the kid thought that was super cool. Nice. 
And then she was like, Oh, give me, like, give me the car. And then I'll, you know, the mm. I'll do it again. And the kid didn't quite know what to do, but he was sort of reaching for her. And then she physically prompted him to give her gotcha, the car. Gotcha. He initiated that movement. She didn't go and hand over him, prompt him to do something that he didn't right, want to do. Right, right. And that's a big difference in our program is we really work hard with our staff. And, you know, I've, I've said, like, obviously there are times when you're working with young children, when there's safety involved, when there's self-care routines, you're going to need to, you know, force kids to do things. Sometimes that's how it goes for any child, right? If they're bolting away, you need to stop them, mm -hmm. right? Um, but when we're teaching, we should not be forcing them to stay with us. We should not be forcing them to, to do any particular action. They should want to be there and want to engage mm -hmm. because this made the activity so fun that that's what the kid is choosing to do. That seems to be a, a, a quite a different approach than sort of the standard kind of pairing where you were just, you're just gonna, you know, give them things to kind of, um, make them, make them find you valuable. How, so what do I, What's the, is there, is there like a particular sort of technique that folks are taught or is it just, or could you, could you have a session where basically if the kid's not into it, you just don't do anything? Yeah. I mean, technically that's possible, but a bunch of other mm -hmm. things that we do that are part of the ESDM like curriculum or fidelity, teaching fidelity checklist that will help you manage that. So a big one is environmental arrangement. Right. So limiting the distractions or limiting how many pieces are out so that the child kind of needs you to be there, things like that. Mm. And that doesn't mean putting the child in a chair and putting the table in front of the child so that they're boxed in, right? <laughs> that means right. keeping what's right. happening fun and keeping the distractions out, outside of what's happening minimal. Um, but I also, you know, Sharice and I talk that Sharice is my business partner, co-clinical. Right. And we talk about this a lot is that Sometimes you'll be doing something with a child or, or trying to do something, trying to engage them in something, and they'll kind of get up and walk away. But that doesn't mean that they're not still interested. And so, so mm. you have to be really uh, responsive to subtle body language cues because sometimes they're just like peeking out of the corner of their eyes, but still looking at you. And if you mm. do the right thing or the right combination of things, they will come back and play with you. So it is a lot of trial and error to get that engagement. And there's definitely kids... I've had to work really hard to get that. Um, but I've never had a session where we do nothing for the whole session. And similarly, you've never had a session. Um, I mean, obviously safety uh, situations aside where you've had to go over and grab the kid to bring them back. Yeah. I, I won't say like, of course we do run into um, problem behaviors at some, sometimes. Right. And we those mm -hmm. in a behavioral way. And sometimes that might include a little bit of blocking or something like that. But for the most part, um, we really stay away from physical prompting, especially when the child doesn't want yeah. you to be touching them. Right. But yes. Uh, I think that's really cool. And, um, and uh, you know, no, I think that's, uh, and, and, and I think that's a, that's a trauma informed approach when you, when you think about it, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that was the, uh, the intention in the design. Um, I'm curious, did you know sort of where, the idea for this sort of approach came from, like, it seems like a pretty cool way of yeah. doing things. Um, I don't know that like the, what we just talked about in terms of, you know, physical prompting, that's not necessarily that's specific to the ESDM, right. That's more of like my, my mm -hmm. view as, as a practitioner, I choose to practice um, in general, like where the ESDM came from a lot of people who are involved in pivotal response treatment, you know, continue to work on in, in the ESDM. 
and then, you know, of course, historically speaking, this first started in Denver, which is why the word um, Denver is in there as the Denver model. Mm-hmm. And then it um, was, I guess, applied to really young children as the early start Denver model. And then we had that 2010 randomized controlled trial that was published out of Washington. So, yeah. So, um, again, I only have, again, I don't work in early interventions. So I don't really have a lot of things to compare mm-hmm. to. Um, and, I, and I, again, I could be butchering this, but what I understand about sort of like things like, like the low sort of things is like the end goal was sort of school readiness is, is kind of how I understood it. And that's, that's why you see the table as being such a big kind of portion of it, because once they get to school, they got to sit at a desk or they got to sit at a table and, you know, be, you know, uh, basically, basically yeah. table ready because schools are table centered for whatever reason. Um, and there's lots of different arguments we could have about desks and 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 how they're how it's a 200 year old practice that's never changed and so on. But um, now I don't I can't speak to sort of I, what's 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 sort of the end goal of ESDM. Yeah, I would state as well that it is also school readiness, right? Yeah, we we certainly look at all those same. I mean. Yeah, we're look, we're working through a developmentally informed checklist of skills as we progress through a treatment. And if a kid finishes the checklist sort of from front to back um, and has all of those level four, you know, that's, that's the last level, has all of those skills, they're at about the level of a typical four-year-old, right? I think mm-hmm. there's such an assumption in ABA in general, right? And that if we don't address something, it's not going to change. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If a child is having tantrums in such and such context, if we don't actually put a behavior plan in place and deal with that, it's only going to get worse. Or if we don't teach a child to sit at the table, then they're not going to be able to sit at the table when they get to school. And what that does is that completely ignores developmental readiness and progression because I don't know a lot of typical three-year-olds and four-year-olds who would sit at a table and do those things. Good point. One of the very sort of eye-opening experiences for me as a behavior analyst was when my brother first had had his first child, my niece, my youngest niece, or my oldest niece. And we were all having dinner one day and he asked her to do something like, you know, put your cup on the counter. And she just said, no, (laughs) but like crossed her arms. Very cute. And he was like, okay, because we have this assumption that if I don't train, train, right? Cool. Mm-hmm. this child to be compliant to me with everything that I asked them to do or 80% or not, you know, whatever your criterion is of things that I asked them to do, then they're not going to do them. Right. Mm. And a, who said that that was important <laughs> Yeah. and B who said that that was true. Like, yeah, because yeah. So we don't necessarily have kids sitting at tables doing learning trials in our ESDM program, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to sit at a table in kindergarten when it's mm-hmm. expected of them. And when yeah. we're developmentally ready to be in that situation, right? Tables, we just play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think about. I mean, again, you've you've, you've sort of potential trigger word for some audience members around compliance. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, uh, I disclaimer: I know there's no particular research per se in ABA behind this, but um, the, there's sort of a suggestion that. Um, if you teach compliance too much, you know, then you're, you've got, you put kids at risk for trauma and at risk for abuse. Um, because, you know, I think your, 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 your niece being able to say no and cross her hands, that's an awesome skill for her to have. Totally. Um, and, and it's something that we're maybe not doing 
mm-hmm. you know, a good enough job with a lot of our kids in terms of, you know, because we sort of assume as a four-year-old and rightfully so, I suppose that, you know, they need to listen to adults. Right. And, uh, you know, that, that the four-year-old isn't going to, the four-year-old can't be independent and drive the car and, yes. and, uh, and run the household. Um, and so, you know, they're going to need some, some guidance and they're going to need, and, you know, they got to do what the elders say, sort of, sort of that idea. Um, but if we see that too strictly, then the problem is, is they, they generalize those skills if we don't teach them properly. And next thing you know, um, they're in, uh, you know, a, a lot of, uh, potentially abusive situations because they don't know how to refuse. Absolutely. And even for a, a child who has a social skills deficit, even without, you know, that kind of, um, compliance training, so to speak, or, mm-hmm they might already have a harder time than a typical child. I don't know if there's research behind this or not, but I can imagine it being true. Whereas yeah. if you have a, you know, reading social cues already, it might be difficult to assert yourself in that kind of situation as well. Totally. Yeah. So that's cool that uh, compliance isn't a, a primary goal of, of the SDM. Um, I want the kids to want to be there and, and we have comments from other people in the building, like, Oh, it's so great to see the kids you know, excited to see you guys when they, when they're dropped off and, and that kind of thing. Absolutely. It'd be, it, it, it makes it interesting. It'd be interesting to see, are there, I don't know a lot of, about the NDBIs in general, and I don't know if you do either, but are there NDBIs? Cause this is obviously the early start Denver model and it's not the, the uh, later in life Denver model. Um, and, and I believe there was a Denver model at one point, but that's not really around anymore. And that's sort of, morphed into this thing are there ndbi uh programs or whatever in place not necessarily in bc but for older kids and for older people because it seems like something we'd want to keep doing yeah yeah i think um i think that there are i'm not super versed i know that there are a bunch of different kinds of ndbis right mm-hmm. and is just one of those um there's a search model there's jasper there's uh early achievements is another one Laura Schreibman in 2015 published a great paper on NDBIs that is a mm. overview. And I can uh, pass you that reference if that's handy for you to share. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I, I might actually have that somewhere. So we'll yeah. add that to the list. That's a great idea. I feel like maybe certs is also for older children, but I'm not mm. sure on that. Yeah, I've heard, I mean, I've heard lots about certs sort of, um, in the field long before I kind of got into ABA, I, I think we were, I was in one of those programs that was very eclectic and just sort of throwing whatever at it. And certs was one that came up quite a bit. I never, I, I didn't realize that fell into the, the NDBI category. I definitely want to look more into certs and see what that's all about. Uh, that's kind of cool. Um, okay. So early start. So how young are the kids? How, what's the earliest one can be an early start? as young as they can get diagnosed. So a lot of the younger clients who come to us are are around two years old. That was pre COVID. I know that the wait list to be assessed in BC is currently very long. So Mm -hmm. have an impact on the the diagnosis age as we go, but we'll just have to see. Um, But yeah, typically around two years old is the youngest, but we'll get kids who are three, three and a half, that kind of thing. And we, you know, we do serve up to sort of five years ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they, once kids are in kindergarten, we actually are transferring them to a different program that is a kindergarten readiness, uh, or kin- we call it kindergarten skills group. And it's a way for them to sort of 
support the families as we transition them sort of out of our program because we're good at the early piece and eventually they're going to need something different. Right. Right. Yeah. I think a transition plan is really important. Um, and, and probably something that's lacking. Um, so is this kindergarten skills program part of the SDM model or is that just something you guys do? It's just something that we do. And, uh, to be honest, it's been a lot of work because it is a different model than what we typically do. So, you know, getting it off the ground is, is different. Right. Um, Mm. but yeah, it's a a little bit more, we have, um, a smaller subset of goals that we focus on versus within the ESDM, we across developmental domains that are affected by ASD. And for kindergarten group, we, we focus primarily on, uh, academic classroom readiness, um, social skills, right. Those, those kinds of things. So yeah, it's a little bit more good. And then uh, that also leaves space in the funding for families to be looking for and starting up programming with other service providers at the same time. So, mm. with them. so yeah, so I guess for folks who maybe aren't listening in BC, uh, we have, uh, and we talked about this a bit already in terms of, you know, the Auden case and, and those sorts of things that there is uh, the way funding works in BC and in Canada, I guess, on some level too. Uh, unlike the states where it's all sort of insurance based, uh, in Canada, it's it's a bit different. Uh, it sort of varies from province to province, but basically, uh, the the provinces provide this funding uh, for for parents, um, and it, it starts at you know diagnosis age until uh, is it their sixth birthday? Is that sort of the timeline? Uh, and, um, and they basically get, uh, what is it? twenty twenty $22,000 a year or something like that. Uh, which, you know, to someone who's not in the field seems, you know, like, like a lottery win, but, um, it's, uh, it's actually not a whole lot when it comes to sort of providing yeah. services based on, you know, paying for BCBAs and everything in between. So autism funding does pay for the ESDM so that it would qualify. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm a RASP uh, Registry of Autism Service Providers Category A professional. Right. I'm, I'm a behavior analyst, and yeah. um, so we are eligible to to bill for our funding. You know, we we build behavior interventionists and mm. all of that stuff. So I, I actually have a question about that. I, again, I'm not on the RASP. I, I I work primarily with you know adults and staff for the most part, um, mm-hmm. and not all that familiar with the RASP. So being on the RASP, and so again for folks that are listening. That's the Registry of Autism Service Providers, um, which basically uh, there's certain qualifications that one needs to have um, um, to get on there. I believe there are some folks that, um, you know, uh, were in the program before these regulations came in. But now you basically need to be BCBA as a sort of a new, I think, addition to the RASP as a behavior consultant. I mean, not as a you know, speech path or whatnot. And by getting on the RASP, you now qualify to bill for that funding. Whereas if folks aren't on the RASP, parents can't spend their money on those people. Um, that I think that changes a bit when they go over six, but um, in, in the young age, that's kind of how that works. And so being on the RASP, you're on the RASP because you're a BCBA, because you had uh, you know the experience and supervision doing the traditional sort of ABA approaches you were doing before. Does being on the RASP, you now automatically you can now, does it now mean you can just sort of, because you're, because you're a BCB on the RASP, that's why you can bill for ESDM or is ESDM somehow fit on the RASP? If that makes sense. The second secret word is 
balance? Um, sure. It doesn't specifically state ESDM is, you know, a billable service or ESDM is not a billable service. But again, you know, I kind of touched on this earlier, although I didn't really say it explicitly, but I think ESDM is ABA, right? ABA. Sure is permeates everything that that ESDM does yeah. and the the RASP funds are for early intervention services and a behavior consultant would implement ABA services mm-hmm. so uh, that's all under the same umbrella um, and I haven't heard anyone um, say otherwise sure I guess the question is is could you bill for dolphin therapy absolutely not okay uh, as a BCBA <laughs> you need to do as a BCBA yeah okay um, yeah Although you're, you're correct, there's less restrictions on how the government autism funding can be used if people are over six, right? right. Um, it's, it's You only need to be on the RASP in order to access funding if you're for um, programming for kids under six right. because higher dollar amount that's associated with that. Yeah. It's actually quite challenging to get on the RASP. Mm. Um, you need quite, not only do you need, so you need to have quite a bit of experience with young children mm-hmm. and being overseen by someone who is on the RASP. Mm-hmm. So I had tons of experience with really young kids because that's the area that I focused on in early intervention. So it wasn't really that difficult for me to get on the RASP once I was um, had the credentials for it. Mm-hmm. But other, other people that I've worked with where um, they don't have have quite enough experience and they've been denied even though that they're they're very qualified people so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's challenging for sure yeah definitely uh and one of the many reasons why i'm not on the rasp Uh, (laughs) um so did you have to make any kind of modifications i guess to how you you know implement the sdm uh as we kind of moved into sort of this telehealth model that a lot of folks are in um Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, COVID was, uh, it's been a rough year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very difficult year as a clinical director of a center because it's just been a lot for us to navigate and manage. We, I, I can't say that we were able to implement ESDM over telehealth. We were able to do some telehealth kind of therapy for some of the kids on our caseload mm-hmm. when we shut down our clinic due to COVID. Um, I'd say it was ESDM inspired, <laughs> just not the same as being in the room with a child. Sure. Right? Um, our primary goals there were really to um, just maintain a relationship and maintain some of the skills for that one, for when we open back up and anything on top of that was like the cherry on top, right? Like um, we did have parent support and coaching over telehealth and that, you know, that's a little bit different, but um, yeah. And so you only started doing this not long before kind of COVID hit as far as the ESDM piece. Is that right? Yeah. I'd, I'd had experience here and there, but I'd really been uh, like our clinic opened uh, February, 2019. Oh, 2019. Oh, okay. So you'd been open. 2000. Yeah. 2019. So you, you had, yeah. you had been open a year prior to the, the, the COVID exactly. uh, crisis hitting. Oh, okay. I see. Good. So you did have a bit. Um, you talked about, you talk about, you mentioned, uh, parent coaching, um, and, and, and that sort of thing. And so is that also part of the ESDM model or what's that? Yeah, that's a component that's really heavily emphasized in ESDM. Although getting training and certification as a certified therapist is not the same as getting training and certified as a parent coach. It's a separate training program and separate skill set. 
which when you think about it makes a lot of sense because working with children is not the same as working with adults. Sure. sure, Yeah. Um, so yeah, but it, it is very heavily emphasized within the, um, the model and also within our program, because like you mentioned, um, the government funding is woefully insufficient to cover the types of, or the amount of intensity of intervention that is recommended by research to be effective. Right. Uh, you know, we're looking at 20 plus hours a week of, of therapy, um, in order to do that. And we're just not able to fit that within our government budget here. Mm. Um, you know, you mentioned that the funding was, um, set up as a result of this court case and that was in 2002, I believe it was first established. Right. It increased by $2,000 in, I want to say the late, like 2009, 2010, 2011, something like that. But aside from that, it hasn't really changed. And of course, living, inflation, minimum wage, all of those things have increased dramatically. So we find ourselves doing, trying to get the same amount of therapy with a budget that is in essence shrinking because it hasn't kept up with inflation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I'd say that that parent component is something that we are really trying to emphasize heavily at our center. And we actually um, set aside budget for this, um, for for our senior staff to work directly with parents, because that's just going to extend the learning that the child's getting throughout the day. So I suppose the idea, yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, so, because how many hours does the average uh, student get right now? With Within the government funding. Mm one-to-one program, they're going to get about seven and a half hours a week of therapy without going over budget. Some families choose to enroll their child in more than that. And they, they need to understand, of course, that they're going to be paying out of pocket um, at some point. And yeah, that's this whole year has been weird because of COVID, but in general, um, that's how it goes. So with that 2010 uh, study that they did, was that 20 hour plus mark? Did that number come out of that as well? Or is that like, is that an ESDM number? Yeah, I think, I think that's, you know, it used to be 40 hours a week, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what they did in the, the in the low vest studies. Right. And I think um, there's, there have definitely been other studies that have looked at yeah. uh, that intensity. We don't really have a prescription amount sure. child given symptoms, right? Like that would be really nice um, to have that research, but we don't have that. Um, but yeah, 20 hours a week has been, I think, is sort of a moderated amount given that it's kind of insane to expect a young child to participate in therapy for 40 hours a week. Yeah, yeah. So 20 hours a week is, I think, a little bit more palatable for families and for kids. For sure, for sure. And I believe that there are research studies that that use that number as well. And I think the 2020, uh, 2010 study is one of them. Yeah, yeah I'd heard, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Justin Leaf, he was uh, doing a lot of... Uh, um, elaborating on this. And, and apparently the, the 40 hours is actually an average. I, I haven't really looked into it that much. And so in fact, that some of the kids in that original study may have had as little as 15 hours apparently and, and been mm-hmm. successful. So uh, it's possible that that mm-hmm. came there, but now you guys get six or so hours. And so this is where the parent coaching, it, I guess, becomes really integral because then you can sort of continue those hours um, at home by the parents implementing absolutely sort of similar things. And so the parent coaching that you're doing, is it generally on the same sorts of programs that you're doing in the center, uh, but carried over? Yeah, that, that depends. Um, that absolutely depends on where the family and the child is at and where the, where the needs are. Right. right? Typically for, if, if we're getting a referral for a really young child, 
Um, they're usually so young that not a lot of problem behavior has developed at that at that age. And so um, a skill acquisition model using the ESDM, so teaching parents to use these strategies with their child at home is going to be probably a better approach in that situation mm. to start work building and that, and that kind of thing. Um, we also get some kids who, you know, are very, have a really difficult time with, you know, being told no with things or um, having things not go their way or having people not play the way that they want to. Um, that's, I think, a relatively common uh, thing that comes up with um, kids on the spectrum, right, due to that rigidity and, and insistence on sameness, right. part of that diagnostic criteria. And so we've actually also worked with um, Kelsey Ruppel with the FTF Behavioral Consulting Group, and we've done the balanced parent coaching program mm. through them, doing that with a number of our families to help families work directly on flexibility, essentially, with their kid using those same same sort of principles of the skills-based treatment from Dr. Hanley's model of communication and toleration and cooperation. Yeah. I wouldn't mind hearing more about balance. So balance is, uh, so balance is the program you're using. You're not doing the SDM one right now. You're thinking maybe down the road, you might do the STM. Yeah. I'm not a certified parent coach yet. We worked, um, a little bit with Lori Vismara and she's given us, um, we've done some consultation with her. She consults to us on a clinic. Um, she's a, an expert in ESDM and parent coaching. And so she's given us some tips here and there, but neither Sharice nor I are certified at this right. point. So the balance program, first off, so are, are, are you, do you have a certification now in that of some sort or? Um, not necessarily, but I completed the course with them. You, you so. did the course, you did the work. So it's not necessarily a certified training. I've heard lots of good things about balance. And so balance, I guess for folks that don't know, it's it's something that sort of came out of um, all of uh, Greg Hanley's work and his team around this whole practical functional assessment and the uh, skill-based training, the SBT for short, which has become super popular these days. Um, and, and balance, is, is that a part of that program? Is that what that is? Yeah, absolutely. There, um, Dr. Hanley also did some research um, with some other people on the preschool life skills. And so that's sort of another area that informs the balance program. And so what balance is specifically is a parent implemented um, treatment for emerging problem behavior. So not necessarily situations where problem behavior is very severe because you might need to go a different route in terms of, um, you know, having a professional lead the, lead the training. Um, but with balanced parent coaching, you're working directly with the family and, and walking them through, um, essentially going through really sort of, um, dumb down doesn't sound quite right, but like... <laughs> <laughs> really sort of simplistic versions of that because, because the kids don't have severe problem behavior, we don't need to be as analytic. We still individualize. Um, but yeah, um, working with families to have them implement it directly yeah. with their kids. I really like that sort of, again, that preventative kind of approach. What does emerging problem behavior look like? Like what's that even mean? That's a great question. I think the way that I, you know, I can't think of that. Oh <laughs> my word. The way that I kind of conceptualize that is that um, if problem behavior is emerging, it might still be developmentally appropriate, mm. but it might be to a greater intensity or um, you know more frequently than say a typically developing mm. um, child. And it's it's one of those things where I know I said earlier that you know we make assumptions sometimes that if we don't intervene on something that it's, it's not going to yeah. get better, but often with emerging problem behavior, 
you know, it's, it's something that's sort of ramping up yeah. or it like it's on, on the increase. Right. And it's a, um, usually has to do with those diagnostic characteristics around um, rigidity or repetitiveness that involve an intensity that is difficult for the family mm. to manage. So can you give an example of what that might look like to someone? Like if a parent was watching their child do something? Yeah, sure. So um, we actually find that it's very common um, that kids will have difficulty with um, like accepting other ideas in play or, or doing things the way that somebody else will yep. do. This is also, I'll say, much more common when we get kids who come into the clinic at like three or four mm. versus two. Or we might see that even if they've been with us since they're really young, it might start to come out a little bit more once they hit like three, four years old. Um, but they just have more language. They have more understanding of the world. They understand that they can control things. <laughs> and so they want to. Um, but say, for instance, you know, I've had kids where you just place the tiniest bit of sort of reasonable demand and it becomes a huge, you know, tantrum mm. or, you know, every, you know, it, or it develops into every time we put any activity away, there's a, a tantrum about that. And there's tears and there's crying. And yeah, those, those might be situations where we just can't seem to quite get, get past yeah, yeah. this, right? It's not like a short So what, how, what does the balance model look like? How, how do you implement that? Yeah. So it's a series of steps that you go through with families and within the steps you teach these, teach the family to teach their child these different skills as we go along. Um, the first step is really to promote play. And so it's teaching the family that um, essentially how to build rapport because often adults have this idea that playing with their child is sitting next to them and watching them play mm. and asking them questions about what they're doing. And often that's just a series of demands. Yeah, true enough. So we have some really specific goals that we look at for the parent and for the child in these in these steps. And so for promoting play, that's the first step. We really look at, we're building up this context of really fun stuff where they have their favorite things. They have undivided parent attention. They have no demands being placed on them, right? So they have all of the things that they could possibly want. The parent's responsive to everything that they say or do or any initiation for communication they have. Um, so it's, it's really kind of building that context where problem behavior is really unlikely. And then every time we progress from there, the reinforcer is going back to that context. Right. right, right. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I, uh, you, 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 you don't think about play that way, but that, that's a really interesting concept because uh, yeah, the idea of sort of sitting by, are you having fun with that truck? Um, oh, that looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, are, are you going to play with that one? Are you going to do that one? And I don't know that folks think about those questions as being demands doesn't even know how to answer a question um, and could find that really stressful. I know there's lots of kids that struggle with choice making because they've never, they've never been given a choice before. So they, they actually engage in problem behavior when you put two things out when they only want one. So yeah, so that, that's actually probably a real basic foundational skill that could even prevent a whole lot of challenging behavior in and of itself, just by getting parents to, you know, make the car jump versus ask about the car. Absolutely. Yeah. Although touching the materials, unless the, the child asked you to is another thing that we, <laughs> that we work on because sometimes it's the kid wants it to be just, just right, so right. So it's an issue, but yeah, <laughs> I see what you're so saying. So then what's, what's the next phase then after the play has been established? Um, so because this is the uh, version of this program that's focused on parent interaction at home, the first skill that we actually teach is responding to the child's name, but it's done in a very um, structured way where we teach the, the parent to say the child's mm -hmm. name, 
prompt them to prompt the child to stop what they're doing, look at the adult and not have anything in their hands Mm. and say, so the whole idea is if you think about the kid who's, you know, playing with the iPad and you have a hard time putting the iPad away by teaching them to do all of those things, when you're teaching the respond to name, Mm. it's a small interruption that they need to tolerate, but it's setting the foundation for later interruptions because you're actually teaching them to disengage with the thing. Um, and turn towards the adult and say yes. Um, and there is research as well that res- you know teaching children to respond to name to their own name or when t- when children respond to their own name, they're more likely to respond um, cooperate with instructions that come after oh, that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So is is balance like a manualized thing, kind of like Ruby and those other sort of programs? Yeah, it's manualized. So um, Dr. Kelsey Ruppel and Dr. Gray Hanley did a great job of putting all this information together. There's a parent version and a professional version. I spend a lot of time reading the professional version and go over that with the families, but then I give them a nice handout after each session that kind of summarizes what they need to do. Um, yeah. And so with the parent version, the parent version, is this something that they would just do on their own and they wouldn't have coaching from you? It's sort of just parents go buy the book and figure it out themselves. Is that what that is? Not exactly. Essentially, what we do is we go over the concepts together in a coaching session that's live, like with their child and me watching. There's a little bit of talking to catch up at the beginning, but the majority is me seeing what's happening. So I can, you know, the the first thing that we'll do is say, um, show me what you've been practicing, show me what you've been working on. And we go from there. And depending on what that looks like, we might stay there or we might move on. And, um, and then the rest of the session is direct coaching with the family, you know, introducing the concept and then coaching them through it with their child live. Um, and then when we finish, they're going to carry that on and practice that throughout the week until I see them again. Sure. Um, so they're, the, the form is more of like a reminder of the things that we covered right. together, but not a for working right. with them. Right. And so how much time would you spend with a parent during a week doing the coaching versus them going home? And- 45 minutes to an hour oh, wow. would be sort of our session. And then their practice should be sort of five to 10 minutes a day. Oh, wow. So that's not much. It's a pretty, pretty low demand for the parents. For sure. That's really yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I, I, I know a, a lot of, you know, sort of home-based even behavior plans often end up being pages and pages and pages and, 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 you know, sort of too much for them to handle. So that's great. Is there, is it a curriculum or is it just sort of a, like, does it, does it have a beginning and an end? Yeah. So we, we start off with response name, like I said, then we work on teaching a functional communication response. So mm. we teach the child to do a, a simple and then a complex version. Um, the way that this is framed for the parents is teaching them to, re- to use their words uh, and then, you know, improve the way that they're using their words. Um, mm. We actually teach um, tolerance to denial, right? So we add in a denial signal and we teach them to say, okay, or to accept in some way. Um, we also do work with a family once we get to working on more than one thing is there, then they're, um, semi-randomly rotating what they're asking each mm-hmm. time. So alternating between response name and using these words or, you know, depending on, on, we end at different points, much like with right, this, right. those who are familiar with that. And so the, the handout also has like a little checklist that they can follow to tell them what to do each time to have them sort of keep that in mind. Um, once we do um, tolerating denial, we add in, um, cooperation, starting with just one simple, quick instruction (laughs) and building from there. And so we teach kids to cooperate a little bit and then teach them to cooperate a lot. And then we start 
working on uh, different instructions, different areas, and removing sort of at the beginning, we introduce these bins. So it's fun bin and task bin. And, mm-hmm. and we show them that when we're doing fun bin, all of these fun things are happening. Um, but eventually we get to the point where we take the bins away and we just do it in natural routines. Mm. The third secret word is parent. So balance program, you know, being part of the whole PFA, SBT, uh, you know, uh, uh, group. Um, again, I, I don't know a whole lot about PFA and, and SBT beyond uh, the few webinars that I've watched, but it seems like a pretty, you know, uh, complex process. Um, you know, there's a lot of steps and there's, a, uh, you know, there's these sort of contextually appropriate behaviors, cabs, they call them, and, and it starts to look like a bit of a tree and they have tree terms, even like branches and so on and so forth. Um, and it gets quite complicated and, and thus, you know, requiring, you know, substantial mentorship and, and support to kind of get through all that. It sounds like I, I would hope that the, the balance program isn't the, this, this complex. No, Abs- no, it's definitely not that complex. And I think that's also, um, you know, at the beginning we do a, a baseline assessment where you actually get the parent to ask the child to do instructions, mm. just see what that looks like. And if you're finding that in that, you know, five minute clip where the parent placed a little bit of demand, if you're seeing some major problem behaviors, then that's a real cue that this is not the approach for that family. Mm. You to need something that's more structured, like the skills-based treatment. Gotcha. So someone in the balance program isn't necessarily coming in with like major challenging behavior or whatnot. It's more of a, just an, an early, early, it's a, just an early intervention, general. Screaming, crying, all of that stuff. That's still really difficult for parents to manage. Maybe some aggression, right? Yeah. Um, but they're not, you know, engaging in really severe or really dangerous high level of of potential for harm. And that's when you need to get into the more sort of, you know, uh, intense, specific kind of programming. That's really cool. Uh, So balance program, what's the age range? Is it the same as sort of the two to five, six kind of idea? No, this one's a little different. It's more sort of three to seven. Hmm. Um, And yeah, I don't know that it would be useful or appropriate to work on these kinds of skills with with anyone kind of younger than three. Mm Like, I don't know if it would be developmentally appropriate to have them <laughs> learn these things. Sure. Um, but yeah, it can go up to about age seven. And I have worked on this with kids up to seven. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a really great process uh, for the right profile, for sure. That's cool. So could, I'm, I'm just thinking about people out there that maybe aren't, there's, there's, there's people that, are, again, because of the, the funding sort of model that we have in the province, we, you know, we, often we have folks getting handed over to other consultants sort of yeah. at age six or other programs. And, you know, it's nice when you get to carry the program on and the parent can maintain that sort of relationship, but often the money is just not there. And, and there's lots of these sort of government uh, funded kind of programs now for the six to 18 kind of category. Do you think a do you think a consultant? I'm just thinking of people out there that might be listening and looking for alternatives. Do you think a consultant could start the balance program at age six and do it at age six and seven? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know, yeah, you'd want to look a little bit at the subtleties of the profile and to make it appropriate. But I think absolutely, it could very well be done. I think that, that I think that's something that's missing too. Is um, um, although I don't know, is, is I don't know anything about the Ruby curriculum either. Is the Ruby curriculum for the same sort of age category? Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, I don't know, actually, if there's, I think Ruby is more sort of a general buffet of different, 
you know, potential uh, intervention strategies that mm. we know are appropriate. There's a particular um, age range. Right. And it's a great program and very informative. I think what it lacks is the direct coaching. Mm. Uh, and of course, you can adapt it to include that. Right. It's very much a didactic approach of the professional sitting with a parent and reviewing a bunch of information and then sending the parent to go. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, I really like the, this uh, this balance idea. I think there's something, I don't know if, uh, if Dr. Hanley is out there uh, listening, I'd be honored if he was, but uh, I wonder, I wonder if there's plans to sort of grow this program for as kids get older, because I think this is something that's really missing for sort of that, yeah. that six plus category. Uh, I know parent coaching is a big part of sort of the six to 18 um, yeah. sort of intervention scene, but I don't know that there's any sort of manualized, you know, programs out there. So this one sounds really promising. Yeah. Definitely the the harder thing when you work with older students is that the patterns are more ingrained and they're more difficult to change. Right, right, right. Very cool. And so balance, of course, you know, doesn't require that you do any sort of functional assessment in the first place because you're not dealing with a major challenging behavior. So it's something you can just kind of go into and it's more really more of a a preventative, again, sort of uh, sort of piece. That's really neat. Yeah. Right on. Um, so you were in dance. Um, are you still in uh, d- doing dancing or anything like that? I'm not doing dance, uh, but I do do circus arts. Oh, yeah. Like, that's like, 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 well, I, I won't, I won't try to take a guess because I think that I'll just be stereotypical if I do. When I say I do circus arts, they say like Cirque du Soleil. Ah, um, yes, yeah. That's what everyone's seen. And, and no, not quite like Cirque du Soleil, but kind of, um, yeah, I guess um, when I, it's, it really just started as a hobby for me. I, when I switched my degree to psych and was doing all this ABA stuff, I wasn't dancing anymore. And so I wasn't getting any exercise. And so I just started taking these recreational classes. I'd always wanted to do circus. I always thought it was really cool, but I was always really heavily focused in dance and I didn't really have time to do anything else. So yeah, when I started not dancing anymore, it gave me the opportunity to try this. And it was kind of that like, the the classes were just expensive enough <laughs> that you really didn't want to miss them. But it was also a session. So it's not like yoga where you drop in, you're like, oh, I'll go tomorrow, I'll go tomorrow. Like you had to commit to a day and time. Mm. So that worked really well for me and my scheduling at the time. And yeah, I, I started doing it and I loved it. It was a great way of, um, you know, getting exercise and meeting people and, you know, building community. And then I just started doing more and more of it. And we talked a little bit about how I had my BCABA for a year and I was practicing, working private practice at the time. And I actually started a, like a training, a circus training program, like on the side, it was in the evenings. I would like work all day and then go to the circus school and train for like four hours on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays. And that was like my, my life at the time. Well, this was what I was kind of leading to. Did, so did you, do you find, did you, did you find, or do you find you are applying any sort of ABA to your, your circus training? Um, yeah, I, I think in some ways, yes. Um, especially now that I've, I've had to do a lot of injury rehabilitation over the past couple of years. Mm. Um, I was in a car accident, uh, over two years ago now. Okay. Pretty bad whiplash that affected my training. So yeah, it's, it's always been an area that I've been really focused or interested in, in terms of, um, like the, overlap between ABA and health and fitness and absolutely he's with with Nick Green about this and um that kind of thing yeah it's, it's a super interesting area for me I've never really been able to um 
like define it in a way. Right. Mm. But I, I'm positive that it's like, I haven't been, I used to take data on, <laughs> on everything that I did, yeah, yeah. but that is time consuming. Um, so yeah, this yeah. could, this could be maybe some PhD work, you know? Um, uh, I mean, I think we're seeing a lot more, a lot of cool things now around how kind of ABA is expanding outside of the autism field. Um, you know, I see things like, like Antonio, Antonio Harrison with his, uh, football coaching and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, what's it, Polly from, uh, um, uh, Brett Genovi doing, uh, uh, the, the MMA with ABA. Um, yeah. and then of course we see a lot of the stuff in tag teaching, you know, with gymnastics and I could see tag teaching really kind of fitting nice into, into kind of what, what you're doing. I think that's, uh, I think definitely we should be on, on the lookout for, uh, circus ABA with, uh, with Maria yeah. in, 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 in a few years. That's really okay. awesome. Right on. Uh, so cool. Um, well, really fun to talk to you. Um, yeah. really, uh, it's, I think it's a really interesting kind of mix of work you're doing. I, I know there are some other, you know, private ESDM practitioners, but it sounds like you guys may be the only, uh, you know, bigger clinic that I, I know of, um, uh, that's kind of doing this. Um, so definitely, definitely, uh, uh, neat to have someone kind of, uh, you know, pioneering something, I guess, in a way, uh, for, for, uh, for BC and for folks and, and some new ways of uh, looking at things. Uh, we'll definitely, um, put a bunch of stuff in show notes around, you know, uh, you know, more on ESDM and some of the articles you were talking about. Definitely. Once your article gets published, we'll, right. we'll add that to the list. I think that's pretty cool. Um, okay. the name, what's the name of, uh, the, the, your, your, your center for folks? Yeah. Up early intervention clinic. Up early intervention, and that's and that's located over in the in the the, the Pacific uh, Autism. That's right. Yeah, Pacific Autism Family Network. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. That's really cool. Right on. Good. Well, thanks, Maria. Thanks so much for being here. So awesome. Thanks so much for having me. You bet.